week six of Just Like Barnabas. Talk today about Barnabas as defender as he goes to bat for John Mark in Acts 15, verses 36 through 41. You are listening to the Brentwood Baptist Church Life Group Leader Podcast, a resource to equip and encourage group leaders on their journey toward being disciples and making disciples through life groups. I am extremely excited for this text today for a number of reasons. One, because it's just interesting. Two, because it's difficult. Three, because I learned a lot as I was studying it for myself before I come here to, to talk about it with you. Um, the Barnabas series overall has been great. Uh, I pray it's been great on your campus. I pray it's been great in your groups. Our groups have certainly been edified and encouraged by it. The The major thrust is essentially that Barnabas, um, while so significant for the early church, seems to be an individual that we can imitate very readily. He seems more relatable than some of the extraordinary aspects of the of the New Testament. And to say, what does leadership look like for each one of us in our own callings? What, In what ways are we hinges right now for a group, for a campus, for a community? Just like Barnabas was a hinge as he went and got Saul to come teach at Antioch, as he defended Saul in front of the Jerusalem Council. Where you see Barnabas as this incredible hinge figure in the movement of the church and the missionary expansion of the gospel to Gentiles. In what ways are we called to be hinges now? In what ways are we called to be leaders, to be defenders, to be generous with our time, with our resources? Uh, so how can we be more like Barnabas? And then again, the, made, the other theme I've been pushing through all of this is that we see echoes of Christ in that. So as we imitate Barnabas, we're imitating Christ. And, and we are becoming more Christ-like in what we're doing. The Holy Spirit is working on us to change us more and more into the image of Christ. So the state of theology is something done by Lifeway and Ligonier Ministries came out the other day, the state of evangelical theology. And it's discouraging in a lot of ways. Our people seem to understand uh, conversion at its core, but then they don't seem to understand much else. So, for instance, uh, something like 90 percent believe in the Trinity, Father, Son and Spirit. But then some large number, I think it was above 50 percent, believe that Jesus was created. And so I don't understand how you can be in nature equal when one person, the father, is uncreated and another person, the son, is created, that would decidedly make them unequal, uh, in a sense, at least in their core essential natures. One would have the attribute of eternality and aseity, independence, whereas Jesus would not. So it's just, it's just confused and it's messed up. And I have some leaders that will get discouraged that their people say, more application, give us more application. And the leader... The leader's response is to then dial back theology, dial back the specifics of the text, and then um, and then just dive dive deep almost into pure application. And I always have to encourage my leaders here to say, no, the problem is not that you're giving too much theology and not enough application. The problem is your people aren't doing homework. You all as leaders spend multiple hours in the text. You're saturated in the text. The Holy Spirit is working on you through the text. You're seeing the text in your daily life as you live it out. So the application becomes obvious to you because you're so steeped in it. Now, you show up to group whenever you, whenever you all meet, 
and for many of your groups, it's the first time that your people have ever even read this text. And so they're craving application because they cannot, in 30 minutes, make the quick transition from core theology, core exegesis to particular application in any um, any in-depth way. So the problem isn't too much theology and not enough application. The problem is a non-daily engagement with the scriptures in prayer and seeking the wisdom of the Spirit in our daily lives. Do you see? The application and the practicality flows out of our relationship with the Spirit, and our relationship with the Spirit is most nurtured in our daily engagement of the Scriptures, community of faith, worship, prayer, etc. So if you're people, I mean, then this is why in the classical Sunday school model, which I love and defend and fight for, uh, this is why the teacher grows at 150 miles an hour and the group grows at five miles an hour because the teacher is so steeped in the text. Uh, so, so again, it's not a lack of theology. We, we, we don't need to dilute or dial back our theology. We need, actually need to ramp it up and encourage people to be daily in their own text. And then when you get together, you're going to be way more easy to make those links to application. Um, just imagine you have a group, even of 15 people. Are you going to go around to each one and give them specific application for their life? Maybe, maybe, but my guess is you don't even have time for that. So that means that the true catalytic transformation is going to come when people are away from our actual group time. And then, of course, all the research I've ever done in my firm belief is that happens best in triads and quads, so little gender-specific groups of three and four people. So we want to continue to have our teaching compel people to engage uh, daily in the scriptures where the Holy Spirit is the one that does the teaching on how we're called to live this life and how we're called to be Christ where we are. So this text is a challenge. Um, it's a challenge to our sensitivities towards unity. It's a challenge towards some of our, and when I say our, I mean me in particular, our naivete towards the greater work that God is doing uh, around us. That doesn't always make sense on the surface, but as we look back upon it, we see that God was, as he always is, I mean, there's no time where God's not active, but that is to say that God was weaving something extraordinary and unique and specific in our lives that we just couldn't see in the moment. Um, in the moment is not what we wanted. In the moment, it doesn't feel good. It doesn't seem right. And yet... God is weaving. I mean, it was a book by Ravi Zacharias called The Grand Weaver. God is weaving something incredible to come from it. And that's what that's what this text is about. So it's a text that on the face of it, superficially, it seems discouraging. There's a fight. There's an argument. There's a split in the great missionary team of Barnabas, the, the Hermes and Zeus, Barnabas, Zeus, Paul Hermes, because he spoke more, uh, this great missionary team and all the I mean, just think of what we've been through with them over the past couple of weeks and their teaching at Antioch and during the persecution of Stephen, Paul's radical conversion. Uh, these are our guys. This is our team. And now the team is splitting, and it's sad in a lot of ways. And I think if we stay at that superficial level, this can be a very discouraging text for us. But if we see what God does in this text, if we see the Holy Spirit's movement upon this text, the very Holy Spirit who last week we said called them, uh, set aside for me, 
Barnabas, and Saul for the work to which I've called them. If we see that same Holy Spirit working in these, in this situation, even though we don't like it on the face of it, uh, this is going to be a very powerful, very powerful uh, lesson and study for your people. Let's dive into the Acts passage in particular here. And again, we're talking about Barnabas's defender. So we're elevating Barnabas's uh, passion to defend. And I'm excited about this. Unfortunately, I'm not teaching this week, at least not right now. Maybe if I pray hard enough, somebody will get sick and need me to teach in their group. Uh, my home group is on pause right now, the one that I lead in my house. So I won't be teaching right now. I'm not on the docket. But if I were teaching, here's what I would do is I would elevate the two times that Barnabas is a defender. First with Saul at the Jerusalem Council, and then secondarily with John Mark here. And John Mark is the one I dig in on. I would just use the other to say this is a pattern within Barnabas's life. This isn't a one-off sort of thing. And then I would go to the dark side of being a defender. Uh, the, the, um, the being swayed. If you're too, if you, if you're too open, then you can't grasp a hold of anything. And then we see that come up in Galatians and say that there's a healthy, there's a healthy, um, blend here is what Aristotle would call the golden mean. There's a healthy, there's a healthy ethic in the middle, in the average between this less defend at every corner, even when they're wrong versus the less be cynical and skeptical about everybody and not accept anyone after they've screwed up once. There's a healthy Christian ethic that Christ lived in the middle that says everyone is capable of restoration. Let's provide pass for that, but then let's not also be naive. There's a reason Christ said, be innocent as doves, but as wise as serpents. That we don't want to uh, be naive about where we're throwing our pearls and wasting them when there's people that are truly open to the gospel, truly open to being discipled. And we're over here banging our heads against the wall um, with someone who has no true desire, sincere desire to let Christ work in their life. My goal with this, uh, again, is not that you do it the way I do it or say exactly what I say. I'm just laying out some tracks and giving a little bit of background for what's going on here and setting up these contrasts. So hopefully the spirit will spark something in your mind about how you want to take it, which may look radically different uh, than what I would do. So first, I, I want to set the contrast of Barnabas as defender in the pattern of behavior. So Acts 9, 26 and following. Acts nine twenty six and following, when he, that is Paul, arrived in Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him since they did not believe he was a disciple. Barnabas, however, took him and brought him to the apostles and explained to them how Saul had seen the Lord on the road and that the Lord had talked to him and how in Damascus he had spoken boldly in the name of Jesus. Saul was coming and going with them in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He conversed and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, that is the Greek Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the brothers found out, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So we see Barnabas defending Saul, saying, this guy is legit. This guy has the cred and bona fides to be one of us. He has seen the risen Lord, and, and we can see that in the fruits born in his life and the bold teaching that he's offering of the gospel of Christ as the messianic fulfillment of the Old Testament. So Barnabas' defender did it in Jerusalem with Paul, and then now he's going to defend John Mark against Paul. <laughs> so we, we see this pattern of defense in Barnabas. So obviously the immediate application is who do you need to be defending um, and, and meditate on who's defended you. I know when I got to Brentwood Baptist as a young punk coming out of seminary, very prideful, 
um, very arrogant about the way things ought to look, the way teaching ought to look, the way preaching ought to look. And if it wasn't the way I was trained or the way I thought about it, it, it wasn't legit or it wasn't it wasn't what it ought to be. It wasn't biblical or something like that. And I had a, a three men in particular, uh, Maurice Painter, who's one of our life group leaders, uh, Gerald Stowe, who has since passed on, but was really a pastor's pastor. Uh, he was he was the pastor to all the pastors in Nashville. He's the one that shepherded them so well. And then Tim Holcomb, who was also passed on, unfortunately, was on staff here and with Lifeway for years and years and years. And they all spoke on my behalf um, and they would rebuke me and they would set me straight. But they vouched for me in front of men who were 15, 20, 30 years my senior and said, you know, you can trust this guy. Defended me, you know, trust him. Um, he he's learning and he's growing. But he's aimed at the right stuff, and, and he has a wisdom that's beyond his years in many ways. And so having those men who are pillars in our community defend me and support me in what uh, I believed, and they believe. That's why they did it. It wasn't because they, they thought I was unique or special. It's because they saw a calling in my life that the Spirit uh, encouraged them to uh, speak into it, and, and boy, did they. Um, they. They are so significant for me. So when I meditate on who defended me— and I think about who am I to be defending here? Uh, who, who am I to be speaking out for? Who am I to be saying, you know, um, this, it, it might not seem like what you want right now, but you can trust this person. I know where they stand theologically. I see the fruit in their life. This is a person we want on our team. This is a person we want uh, to be in the trenches with us as we're engaging for the kingdom. So Barnabas defends Paul. Now we hop over to our text. So verse 37 says, Barnabas wanted to take along John Mark as they go back to all these churches they had just planted and visit the believers there and encourage the believers. Verse 38, but Paul insisted that they should not take along this man who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone on with them to the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company and Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed off to Cyprus, we would say, Cyprus, but Cyprus, and then Paul chose Silas, a Roman, a Roman, Silas, Roman citizenship anyway, and departed after uh, being commended by the brothers and sisters to the grace of the Lord. He traveled through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So we see this second instance of the pattern of behavior where Paul is a defender, and, and I'm a Paul, <laughs> where Barnabas is a defender and confronts Paul and says, no, I know John Mark screwed up. But we we can trust him. He, he won't do that again, or he's on board with us now. Um, we see a pattern of defense in Barnabas. We see a Barnabas that's stepping up and accepting of people, giving them second, second chances in their life after they've uh, messed up in the ministry or messed up in the friendship, whatever the case is. What I am excited about is I had never asked myself the question, shockingly and all the times i've read this and thought about it and moved through it it's just it's never been a concern to me for some reason but i've never asked what did john mark do why did john mark abandon them the scriptures themselves don't elevate it uh, mightily so i've just never really cared about it and then as i sat and read this text i thought about what could paul possibly be upset about with mark uh, why did mark leave them why did he go back to jerusalem uh, why did he, quote, desert them? And that term that Luke uses is a strong term for deserted. Um, 
The ESV translates the word as withdrawn. Aphistemi is the Greek word, aphistemi. And uh, the, the ESV English, Transla- English Standard Version translates it withdrawn. Uh, CSB translates deserted, and that's the only time the CSB translates it as deserted in the text, which is this passage in 1538. Uh, it's really got a wide range of meaning, and they're all about equally used. Uh, could be some different meanings of it. Could be get away, to turn away, to fall away, depart or withdrew. Those are two of the really common ones. Uh, to depart or withdrew. Turn away is also a really common one. I mean, the term's used 14 times in the New Testament, and it's only in this text that it's actually uh, translated as deserted. Could just be left. Uh, just went away from there. But it is a strong term in this context. Um, no matter what it is, the idea is that we were a unit and we were a band of brothers on mission and this guy removed himself. We were a family on mission and this guy, John Mark, went away from the family. He left the family. So whether you use deserted or went away or departed or withdrew, it doesn't really matter. The idea is that he broke that familial bond of these guys on mission together. And think about any task uh, that you've partnered in with other people. You form some close bonds in that. And, and these guys were going around planting churches, uh, doing incredible work, seeing the Spirit do incredible signs through them. And John Mark walked away from all that. And Paul certainly uh, took offense to it. So the question then is, one, when did he do this? So we can go back and hop at the uh, the text of that. And then we can say, what did he leave for? So it's in Acts 13, 13, where this happens in Acts 13, 13 in the ESV, because that's the one I happen to have open right now, says Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Our question now, and maybe your people are going to ask this, it's going to be a little more obvious to them than than it was to me, is what in the heck did John leave for? So I'll link to a Bible.org article in the the show notes if you look at those. And then I'll also read a little bit out of a, a commentary here, the Expositor's Bible Commentary. And so if you you take a look at that Bible.org article, uh, it lists a bunch of reasons uh, that I'm going to elevate in this commentary. It's really a parallel piece, so I'm not going to belabor the Bible.org article, because you can read that one for yourself. I'll raise out some notes from this commentary. The Expositor's Bible Commentary reads that uh, the general reasons for Mark's departure has been some mixture of homesickness, the rigors of travel, dissatisfaction, dissatisfaction with Paul's assumption of leadership over his cousin Barnabas, that is John Mark's cousin, not uh, Paul's cousin. Barnabas was John Mark's cousin. Or John Mark was just unhappy about leaving Cyprus so soon. However, when we look at the text, and we're going on Gentile mission here. The next couple of uh, chapters are about Gentile mission. And if we look at Acts 15, it's they're going back to visit those same uh, Gentile mission. So I think a great argument can be made, and this is what I, I was learning as I read this, is that it seems as if John Mark was not open or was not amenable or not excited about the gospel going to Gentiles. It's very much what Paul writes about in a lot of his letters. You think about Romans, you think about parts of Galatians, 
where Paul is saying, how are these new Jewish communities who birthed Messiah from whom Abraham, from whom the promise came, uh, that is Messiah Jesus, and now this has all been given over to the Gentiles too, and God is bringing together this unique and diverse family and under one kingdom, under one purpose of worship towards him. So the, expo- the Expositor's Bible Commentary concludes that it can plausibly be argued that their lack of preaching in Perga at this time was due primarily to uncertainty within the missionary party itself about the validity of a direct approach to and full acceptance of Gentiles and that John Mark's departure occurred because he disagreed with Paul. That is to say that there was dissension within the family, our little missionary family here, about whether or not the Gentiles would receive this promise in this way. Um, The Expositor's Bible Commentary goes on, John Mark may have been concerned about the effect that such news of a direct Christian mission to Gentiles would have in Jerusalem and on the church there, and it may be that he wanted no part in it. It may even have been his return to the Christian community in Jerusalem, coupled with an account of his disagreement with Paul about a direct approach to the Gentiles that originally stirred the Judaizers in the church to action. Other explanations for Mark's defection are at best only partial and at worst rather thin. They fail to account for Paul's vehement opposition to Mark in our text, um, Acts 15, 37-39, an opposition that suggests that Mark's departure on the first missionary journey may have been for reasons that hurt Paul deeply and were more than merely personal. So it wasn't just that Paul was mad that Mark was disloyal, but that Mark was denying the very mission of salvation to the Gentiles. And Paul's saying, we're going back to visit these Gentile churches that Mark wanted no part of originally. Uh, He didn't believe that, that the gospel ought to go to these people, or at least not should go to the people in the way that we're about to do it, why am I going to take him back to visit all of those people again? Um, he didn't care about the mission then, and I don't care for him to be on the mission now. You can imagine Paul saying uh, in, in regard to this to this issue with John Mark. And then here comes Barnabas, the defender, saying something along the lines of, look, Mark's changed. He understands now that, that the gospel has to go forth to Gentiles. He gets it. Uh, he understands the big family. He understands the radical nature of God. It will be good for John Mark to see what the fruits there that have blossomed, the elevation of Messiah, the, the worship that's happening. John Mark needs to see all of that. Uh, you can just hear Barnabas defending him, and Paul won't have it. Now, I don't think it is the case that Barnabas and Paul were really angry with one another, or that, um, or at least let's say it this way, Luke writes the text in such a way with such language in the Greek that um, fault is not assigned. Fault is not assigned. So John, you, I mean, um, Luke uses a neutral term here uh, where he doesn't want to assign blame. He's just stating the historical facts of what happens. Uh, and, and it's incredible when we see the heels of it. All right. So we see Barnabas's defender against with Saul against Jerusalem council. Now we see Barnabas's defender um, against Saul on John Mark's behalf. And we see that the reason might've been that John Mark didn't want, I mean, Paul was angry. I mean, Paul's just not a jerk. He's not, I mean, he is harsh, but he's not a jerk. Uh, so he just didn't believe that John Mark, he may not have believed that Mark truly believed that these Gentiles were worthy of salvation. So for whatever reason, they have this um, split now. And now we can bring home the beauty of God and the majesty of the way the Lord works. 
uh, there was a book called Necessary Endings that I haven't read fully, but it's a, it's, it's, it's a good read. And the idea is that it's not always a bad things, the bad thing that stuff ends. And that's what I was getting at in the beginning, that if we read this story superficially, it's painful because it looks like disunity. It looks like uh, relationships are just severed and broken. And um, it's just it, it, it discourages us in a way. But when we look at what God does, it's rather stunning. First, God multiplies the mission because Barnabas and Paul don't just sit down or quit because they have this disagreement. Paul grabs somebody, goes his way on the mission. Barnabas grabs John Mark and goes his way on the mission. So God multiplied the missionary party. He split Paul and Barnabas and created two missionary parties out of that. Uh, Mike Glenn brought it up on the Vision uh, Sunday, which was, I guess, the 7th of October. This was the one that was simulcast to everyone. But he makes the point that if Barnabas hadn't done what he did with John Mark, there's a good chance that John Mark isn't following Peter around. Uh, John Mark isn't restored to the point where he's copying down all these Petrine, these Peter sermons. And that is the basis of which he writes the gospel of Mark. And then if you believe in Mark in priority, as I do, uh, rather than Matthean priority, but Mark in priority, that is to say that Mark came first out of the four gospels, then Matthew and Luke wouldn't have had Mark as a resource for some of their gospels as well. So in a sense, it was Mike Glenn's argument, if Barnabas doesn't defend John Mark here and seek to restore him, then we may not get the gospel of Mark. And then we may not get, or at least we definitely wouldn't get the gospel of Matthew and Luke in the way that we have them. Uh, everything will look so radically different. Um, the, the New Testament will look radically different. The early church will look radically, radically different. So we see Barnabas's loyalty and faithfulness acting as another hinge reality, not only like an Antioch to flourish the early church, but also now as a hinge in the scriptures that the church would use henceforth, that is to say the New Testament. Uh, it's, it's just incredible. It is just incredible that Barnabas's simple obedience in defense of his cousin um, against Paul's lack of trust now that Mark really loves these Gentiles could lead to such extraordinary outcomes. Now, back to the Aristotelian golden mean. That is the good side of defense and openness and acceptance. Problem is, if we go too far, then we can have a blunder. And so I steal this from DesiringGod.org. That's Piper and the boys. So they write, sometime before this separation between Barnabas and Paul in Acts 15, 36 and following, there had been another run-in of a much more serious kind. Peter had come down to Antioch from Jerusalem and was enjoying his Christian freedom by eating with Gentile Christians. But then some of the more strict party in the Jerusalem church came who did not approve of this kind of freedom. The response of Peter and the other Jews and even Barnabas was utterly unacceptable to Paul. And so when I mentioned a few minutes ago from the Expositor's Bible Commentary that Mark's return to Jerusalem may have stirred up the Judaizers, this is what that was talking about. So right before Paul goes and radically takes the gospel to the Gentiles, all right? So it already happened in Antioch, and now he's about to go further and do it to more. It wasn't just a one-off in Antioch. He's going to multiply this sucker all across the, the Mediterranean and in the ancient Near East. And so Mark has 
um, has, has some sensitivities towards this and some angst about this. So he goes back to Jerusalem and talks to the Jerusalem council about what Paul's going to do with these Gentiles, which raises this Jewish fervor that then goes out and persecutes some in the early church. We read in Galatians two eleven through 14, but when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned for before certain men came from James, he ate with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And with him, the rest of the Jews acted insincerely, so that even Barnabas was carried away by their insincerity. And then so, of course, Paul calls him out. In other words, our article goes on. So this is in the Bible. This is the article. The behavior of Peter and Barnabas amounted to a new commandment to the Gentiles that they must virtually become Jews. Notice what was at stake here. It was the truth of the gospel. There are actions that so contradict the truth of the gospel that they cannot be countenanced. Paul knew that when the truth goes, the gospel goes. And when the gospel goes, the souls of men perish. This was Paul's great strength. He never forgot that truth issues are ultimately people issues. Peter and Barnabas were wrong. Their actions were out of step with the truth of the gospel. Why had Barnabas been swept away in this error? Why did a few men coming from Jerusalem cause Peter and Barnabas to conform to their expectations rather than stand up for the principle of gospel liberty. Here is the weakness of a great man. Here the bubble of idealism bursts on the needle of reality. Our hero, that is Barnabas, is fallible and imperfect after all. So this is a series on Desiring God that's very much like our series uh, that's going through the greatness of Barnabas and then they also raise out this weakness. And so uh, his weakness is he was a little too open. And it's a simple idea that we cannot forsake truth in our seeking to restore individuals. Um, this happens in the church all the time. Uh, we want to restore people. We want sinners to be here because here uh, we can restore them in the community of faith, uh, elevate them, get them in biblical community and so forth. But we don't sacrifice the truth of the gospel in any of that. We, we don't sacrifice the truth of our calling in any of that. So it's a restoration to gospel truth. And so the idea then here in our text would be that Barnabas is defending Mark, but is he also rebuking Mark? So he's defending Mark, that Mark made a mistake, but he's maybe not that way anymore. The question is, did Barnabas rebuke Mark for not understanding or not being willing to accept Gentiles as part of the promise? Uh, to be redeemed and become God's children, just like the Jews were. We cannot sacrifice truth. So this is what Aristotelian gold mean means. This is what the average of virtue means. Um, I'll give you a secondary example, just and then we'll double back on this one, and that'll be that. It's to say uh, courage. What is courage? So Aristotle would say, if we just blindly run into the middle of the battle by ourselves, leave our troops behind, forget the strategy, we just dive in guerrilla warfare style, that's not courage. That's brashness and uh, a little bit crazy. That, that That's not courage. That's not virtuous. However, if we always run, if we never engage, if we never stand up when the time comes, then that's cowardice. But the virtue of courage lies somewhere between these two extremes. And I think in this man, Barnabas, we can see that, 
that Barnabas is open in defending to give second chance after second chance to individuals to defend Saul and to put his reputation at stake with the Jerusalem council to defend John Mark and give John Mark a second chance. And then we see the glory that comes out of that with the New Testament gospels. But we also see that if, if you're not careful and if you uh, forsake truth as you're offering second chances, then you can fall into error, both ethical, theological, and otherwise, like Barnabas did uh, with this not eating with Gentiles and the Judaizing of the new Gentile believers. Uh, so we don't ever want to deny, I mean, Jesus was the only perfect one, right? We, we imitate Barnabas insofar as he imitates Jesus. Well, he imitates Jesus when he's defending Paul against the Jerusalem council. He imitates Jesus when he's defending John Mark against Paul. He does not imitate Jesus when he, um, when he sides with Peter and those who are excluding the Gentile believers. And then the sick irony maybe of all of that is Barnabas should have known better because the Antioch church was birthed in part from that dissension between the Greek Jewish widows and the um, ethnic non-Greek Jewish widows and not getting equal distribution there. And so he'd already seen that mistreatment leading um, ultimately to Stephen raising up in Stephen's martyrdom. So Barnabas knew better. Uh, Barnabas was still fallible. This is why we don't worship Barnabas and we worship Christ as truly divine as the second person of our Trinity. The final question then is how are you going to encourage your people to be defenders? What do they need to be defending? Do they need to be defending themselves against attacks from the evil one, trying to cause them to stumble and fall? Do they need to be defending their families against that same reality Do they need to be defending the scriptures uh, against someone who is blaspheming them? Do they need to be defending someone who needs to be restored, who needs to be given a second, third, fourth, uh, whatever chance uh, and be restored to um, gospel mission, to kingdom living? Uh, Who are we called to be defending? And then on the other side of that is to meditate over who's defended us. Uh, Think about those individuals in your life. Like I shared about Maurice, Gerald and Tim uh, defended me and vouched for me. And um, I don't elevate them beyond what they ought to become, but they become pictures of Christ who vouches for me. That is to say, on Judgment Day, when the sheep and the goats are separated and I stand before the Father and I I have to lay my sin out before the Father in all of its embarrassment and in all of the horrors of my sin, that the personal work of Jesus Christ vouches for me and defends me. So we make a beeline, a direct line from the way Barnabas was a defender to the way Christ defends us and speaks out on our behalf and says, he is with me, he is in me. And the father looks at Christ, looks at the perfection, looks at the sacrifice and accepts us as his children on the basis of what Jesus has done.